Your foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Bill Cloud. I want to welcome you to our teaching today. We are calling this America, the beginning of the end. And we are going to be addressing what we believe God's purpose is, was, for the United States as a republic and what the future of this republic may be. And in the course of this teaching, we're going to look at several different things, and including we're going to look at what the founders thought about this nation and what it should be, their views on what the government should be like, their views on what they believed people to be capable of, as it relates to government and restricting the powers of government and then looking at what it has become. And specifically within the last year, two years roughly, as we have seen more and more dramatic change going on in our country. So as we begin, I think it would be suitable to, be, uh, to kind of initiate this with a quote from one of the founding fathers, and that is Thomas Jefferson, who said, There is scarcely a king or would-be king in a hundred who would not, if he could, follow the example of Pharaoh, get first all the people's money, then all of their lands, and then make them and all their children slaves forever. And so that's going to kind of set the tone for what we are going to be discussing today. So as we begin, I want to, if you will, recall with me on the night of his election to the presidency, Barack Hussein Obama, also known, by the way, as Barry Dunham Satoro, said this, change has come to America. And, of course, uh, with that particular statement, I wholeheartedly agree because change has indeed come to America. But the question is, what kind of change? Now, change, as opposed to restoration, which is a more biblical term, would hint that his intentions and those of his administration and his party colleagues will not necessarily be faithful to the constitutional principles that have guided this nation thus far. And so change, by definition, suggests that things of the past are to be replaced with something else. In the current political context, and based on what has transpired excuse me, legislatively in the past at least 18 months, it would seem at least to me, that change indeed means to do away with the America of the past and replace it with something unintended by the framers of the Constitution. Now, to be fair, because I don't want anybody out there who's a Democrat to think that I'm just picking on a Democratic president and disregarding the the sins of the Republicans, I want to note that change has been occurring in our country for quite some time. In fact, uh, this current change that we're seeing has been percolating well, ever since the founding of the Republic, frankly. And it might come as a surprise to many of you, but there have always been, since the founding of the nation, there's always been these two diametrically opposed ideologies that exist within our borders and within the houses of government. And during the past 200-plus years of our history, there have been those times when radical elements have reared their heads and then they're quickly put down by the more traditional faction, if you will, which up until this point in time more or less preserved some semblance of what the founders had hoped for. Nevertheless, in the last part of the 20th century, 
Certainly within the last decade, we have witnessed how even those who are considered to be on the conservative side of the political aisle have done their fair share in undermining the principles upon which the nation was established just as efficiently, just as effectively as those on the left. And so it would seem, again, at least to Bill, that the vast majority of Americans, whether they are politicians or not, uh, regardless of their race, regardless of their cultural background or their political affiliation, have succumbed to the myth that the founders established a democracy, which is a society where the citizens can arbitrarily make or change law when it best suits the will of the majority. So it is true, and this is the point, change has been steadily eroding the country's foundational principles for a long time now. Yet, I think most of you listening would agree with me that since the inauguration of the current administration and the ascendancy of the overwhelming Democratic majority in the House and the Senate, significant and dramatic change has been occurring and an accelerated, and as far as I'm concerned, very alarming rate. So I have to wonder if the transformation we are currently undergoing is the type of change that those 69 million plus people who voted for Obama had envisioned. Now, in recent weeks, there have been certain events that, that have caused me to wonder and pose this question because how they're reacting or how many are reacting to some of the things that are coming out of the White House, some of the policies and out of the halls of Congress, I'm wondering if some of these people are having second thoughts. The problem is, it's too late. We wanted change, and now we've got it. And Bill's strong opinion, uh, strong opinion is that these changes are not conducive to the survival of the republic. As a matter of fact, I believe that the so-called stimulus package, the proposed health care reform, cap-and-trade initiative, all these different things are just the beginning of a long laundry list of policies that are intended to solidify in America a purely democratic, perhaps socialist, or in a worst-case scenario, totalitarian society. Either way, it would spell the beginning of the end for the America as as we have known it. And that, I'm afraid to say, ladies and gentlemen, is very likely the kind of change we are in for. It may not be what we had in mind, but it is what we have. And so with that, the situation kind of reminds me of when the children of Israel began to despise the manna that God gave them, and they were wanting the food, should I say lusting for the food that Egypt had once provided them. Ignoring, of course, that the same Egypt had made them all slaves. Nevertheless, their desire and their cry for meat was so great that God gave them what they wanted until it was coming out of their nostrils and they could stand it no longer. Not only that, but because they had given into their temporal cravings, which effectively was a renouncement of what God had provided, but because of that, a plague swept through the camp, killing thousands. And, of course, we can read about this in Numbers chapter 11. It seems then that God will, at times, give people what they want in order that they might see it was not what they needed. Unfortunately, for many Israelites, that revelation came too late, and I fear it may prove to be the same for many Americans. So... In this story, not only do we see that God will at times give people what they want, 
in order to discover that it's not what they needed. This story also casts a light on another component, I believe, of our present circumstance. In fact, I believe it demonstrates the primary issue that plagues us as a people and which has, and which has resulted in many of the changes that we see underway. In the story, we see that the children of Israel embraced the attitudes of a presumed minority of people referred to as a mixed multitude. It was this mixed multitude who first began to lust after the things that Egypt had to offer. But before long, a large number of the Israelites were infected with their particular mindset as well. And so the narrative in Numbers 11, as well as in Exodus 16, makes it clear that the preference of many was slavery with gratification rather than freedom with contentment. In other words, they were willing to surrender their liberty to a totalitarian government who would feed them what they wanted rather than live free under a God who, acting in their best interest, would give them what they needed. And so this attitude, I believe, is descriptive of our culture today. And this attitude brings to mind a quote that is attributed to George Washington that is supposedly taken from an unread portion of his inaugural speech of 1789. I, I ran across this many years ago in an article written by J.R. Church, and I just found it fascinating. At any rate, Washington wrote that America would endure, and I'm quoting now, until the people of America shall have lost all virtue until they shall have become totally insensible to the difference between freedom and slavery, until they have been reduced to such poverty of spirit as to be willing to sell that preeminent blessing, the birthright of a free man, for a mess of pottage. In short, until they have been found incapable of governing themselves and ripe for a master. In other words, until the American people were willing to turn to the government and give up all their liberties if the government would take care of them. And I'm going to submit to you that the time Mr. Washington described is upon us. Now, for the sake of the point that I'm hoping to make with you, I feel it is prudent to expound upon the fact that the Founding Fathers did not establish a democracy, but a republic. And I want to briefly, anyway, dis distinguish the differences between the two, because, as I said earlier, there are so many people, including our politicians, whether they are Democratic or Republican, or Independent for that matter, refer to this, our form of government as democracy, and that is a myth. And so, I want to discuss what a democracy is, what a republic is, and distinguish between the two. Now, first of all, I want to just say this. When I refer to terms like Democratic or Republican or democracy, or what have you. I want you to understand that I am not speaking of political parties, but I'm speaking of political philosophies. Because even in today's world, Republican leaders, just like I said, nefariously refer to our system of government as a democracy, as if that is what it was always intended to be. Therefore, the objective here is not to advance or to denigrate any political party, but to simply demonstrate what was intended by the founders and consequently expose the purpose and potential dangers of change as it is being manifest today in our government and what's going on politically. So first of all, the word democracy, let's talk about that. It means literally 
people rule. And on the surface, that might, that might sound lofty, it might sound idealistic and noble and all those warm, fuzzy adjectives, but the reality is there is an, an explicit danger in a true democracy. In both a direct and a representative style of democracy, the majority's power is absolute and it's unlimited, which means that law has the potential to be fluid. And what I mean by that is, depending on the will of the electorate or the elective, laws can ebb and flow like water as it is moved upon by the shifting winds of public opinion. A true democracy also means that the minority would be considered to be of no consequence and they would find themselves in the undesirable position of having to conform to the majority's will in order to survive, or in extreme cases, the minority who holds fast to their dissenting position, they might find themselves being castigated, they might find themselves being labeled as uh, society's uncooperative and undesirable element. And when the majority has absolute power, at that point, who can say what measures that unrestrained majority might turn to? And so then, and this is the point, for a purely democratic society to render justice for everyone, it would require that the overwhelming majority of the populace would have to be just and moral. Because if the people are noble, then presumably anyway, so will their representatives, and if their representatives are noble, then the laws they adopt will be noble, they will be just, and they will be moral. And so, ideally, of course, these laws would protect not only the rights of the majority, but the individual as well, and would be for the greater good of all society. Now, that is the best-case scenario, the most ideal situation in a purely democratic society. But the problem with this, the obvious flaw in this style of government is this. People are not instinctively noble or just, but quite naturally are evil and self-serving. Genesis chapter 8 verse 21 says this, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so seeing that wickedness comes naturally to mankind, what would happen in a democratic society if the majority of people became overwhelmingly corrupt? The representatives would naturally turn to corruption. They would forsake laws that espouse morality and justice for laws that provide convenience for the people's impulses and their evil inclinations. For example, Roe versus Wade. This, I believe, frankly, ladies and gentlemen, describes the cultural and the political trends of our day and our country. And so, I think we would do well to remember the words of a, a famous 19th century Irish patriot, a member of parliament whose name was Daniel O'Connell, and he said this, I quote, Nothing is politically right which is morally wrong. And so what I'm trying to get across to you is that the ideal situation of a true democracy is almost impossible to attain. And here's why. Because people are inherently wicked. And so if their hearts are toward wickedness, then the representatives they elect are going to be, reflect that, and then the laws are going to reflect that. And as I said, the, the laws will then abandon justice for the sake of convenience. And frankly, that's exactly what I think of Roe versus Wade and a host of other laws, if you will, that we have in our country. And so Mr. O'Connell was just kind of emphasizing that this is what can happen 
when he says nothing is politically right if it's morally wrong. And yet, that is the situation that we have, not just in this country, but others as well. But we live here, most of us, and so that's what we're focused upon. So I believe it is accurate to assert that any brand of democracy, whether it's uh, a direct or indirect, as a form of government, is fundamentally incapable of guarding against unlimited tyranny. And so everybody who embraces the, the idea that we are a democracy and they endorse this idea must understand this, that sooner or later, the door to dominance by the majority will be opened up. And once that door is open, it will prove very difficult to be able to shut it. And furthermore, it really doesn't matter if the tyranny comes from one individual at the top or if if it's from a body of elected officials. Listen to what Thomas Jefferson had to say about that. He said, multiple despots will surely be as oppressive as one. So whether it's from Congress, whether it is from the executive branch, it really doesn't matter. Tyranny is tyranny. Now, if one cares to search the historical record, which I'm an amateur historian. I certainly don't claim to be an historian. I just have always been fascinated by history and specifically American history. But anyway, if you care to check the record out, uh, you will find that the founders realized the inherent danger of ruling by popular opinion. In short, the founders stood vehemently against the, and I'm quoting, excesses of democracy. In fact, the father of the Constitution, who was James Madison of Virginia, wrote that, and I quote, Democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have, in general, been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their death. And so, ladies and gentlemen, suffice it to say, the historical record is clear. The founders never intended that the United States be a democracy, but a republic. And evidence of this is throughout the history books. It's, it's all over the place. For instance, at the close of the Constitutional Convention itself in 1787, Benjamin Franklin told an inquiring citizen that the conventional delegates had given the people, I'm quoting once again, had given the people a republic if you can keep it. If you can keep it. So my how those words resound today, at least in my ears. So what then is a republic and what makes it so much more desirable as a form of government over a democracy? Now, where democracy means people rule, republic, by definition, literally means a thing of the people or interests of the people. So first consider that distinction. Democracy is a form of government where people rule. A republican form of government is one that functions in the interests of the people. That is to say, the objective is not necessarily in accordance with the people's whims. Madison expounded upon this distinction in the Federalist Papers, and he argued that the greater good often required going against popular opinion because public opinion is at best erratic. In fact, he wrote, There are moments in public affairs when the people, stimulated by some irregular passion or some illicit advantage, 
may call for measures which they themselves will afterwards be the most ready to lament and condemn. And the thing that comes to mind when I read that particular quote is what is going on or has been going on recently with the health care debate and what may or may not come of that debate. We'll have to wait and see. It's just the point that Madison is saying that because people have erratic behavior and their their wants and their desires can change uh, overnight, They'll, they'll vote for something or they'll vote for people who will do something that they think they want only to find out that when the people do it, they really didn't want that. Going back to what we said earlier, at times God will allow the people to have what they want to prove to them it is not what they needed. So now, while a Republican form of government is certainly one where the voice of the people is represented, it is also understood that those who represent the people should of necessity be, as Madison once again wrote, endowed with virtue and wisdom. Now this prerequisite for leadership is a principle that comes directly to us from the scripture. You should recall that when Moses selected 70 elders to aid in leadership, they were to be men that he knew, and that is to say that he was familiar with them, their character, their integrity, and these men were respected as virtuous leaders among the people. And these 70 men were to bear the burdens of leadership with Moses, according to Numbers chapter 11, not impose burdens upon the people as despots would do and as the unprincipled people would do. So they were to bear the burdens, not impose them. In this capacity... They were to be faithful servants to the God of uh, to, to the God of Israel, and as such, were to serve the interests of the people of Israel as well. And so, now that point brings us to this question: Who gets to determine what is in the best interests of the people? In the case of Israel, it was the code of morality, the standards and ethics that were presented to Israel at Mount Sinai. Of course, that is the Torah or the law, if you want to say that, but I'll prefer to use the term Torah. Yet, if you read the account in, in the scripture, you will see that even the Creator did not force His will upon the people. He invited them to enter into the covenant with them, and they freely chose to do so. They said, whatever the Lord says, we will hear and we will do. So He didn't impose His will. He invited them. Now, when they did say, we will we will hear, we will do, when they said, yes, we want to come into this covenant. All of those who did agree to the covenantal decrees pledged to be subject to the law of God. And those who came into the covenant with him were saying, now that we're in the covenant, we're going to be subject to this law that you have given us, to this Torah that you have, that you have given us. By the way, this also included Moses and all the governing elders. So the leadership, the populace, everybody was subject to the same law. And so in matters of controversy, it wasn't the will of the people, or it wasn't the will of the elders, the governing people, if you will. or It wasn't even up to Moses to give the last word. The final authority was the Torah of God that they had all agreed to live by. And so we see these principles in the scripture and we see these principles in the arguments that are being made at the Constitutional Convention and in the writings of the Founding Fathers and what they envisioned the government of the United States should be. 
And so my point is, the principle that we see in the scripture is the same principle that exists in a republican form of government. It is the law of the land, which is, in this case is the United States Constitution, which guarantees freedom by establishing just and moral parameters for the citizenry and even more conspicuously, their representatives in government. Because you see, where a democracy restricts the rights of the minority, a republican form of government is designed to restrict that, not disregard, but to restrict the will of the majority and to severely limit the powers of those in high office. It is designed to protect the individual's God-given rights, provided the individual does not seek liberties that exceed the boundaries established by the very law that secures his freedom. So we see then, folks, that it is the law, or in an American context, the Constitution, that binds the populace together and anchors the society. And in our nation, when there have been those who have attempted to assert their power beyond what was allowed them by the Constitution, the checks and the balances of our republic have reeled them back in, at least for the most part. And so a republican form of government better understands the crucial and the stabilizing role that the law plays in sustaining the intent of the founders. And so again, where in a democracy the rights of the minority are restricted, in a republican form of government the the powers of the majority are severely limited and restricted. It, it's it's like this when we relate to this, this to the Torah. A lot of people have the mindset that the Torah puts them under bondage, that the Torah impedes life, when the reality is it actually enhances life. It doesn't restrict life. It preserves life. It ensures life. Here's what the Torah restricts, the evil inclination in men. And so a lot of people have the, uh, or a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that the Torah restricts life. No, it restricts the evil inclination, and you should know that the evil inclination, that is the carnal mind in Romans 8, or being led by our flesh, ultimately leads to death. And so again, does the Torah impede life? No, it actually ensures life. It just restricts that evil inclination. And so we see this in a democratic as opposed to a republican form of government. And democracy, the people want to do whatever they want to do. And they don't want anybody telling them what to do. They don't want the laws to tell them that they can't do this. And if the laws do tell them they do that, well, they do away with the laws or they change the laws. A republican form of government realizes that in order to preserve life, you have to restrict the evil impulses of men the evil impulses that come along with having all this power, much like the Torah restricts the evil inclinations of humanity. Now, the founders, for the most part, saw this and so did not want to establish a democracy but but a republic. Now, some have argued recently, and I mean some of those in the highest of offices, that because the founders were not all-knowing and were obviously imperfect men, the Constitution must also be fundamentally flawed. And for the record, the constitutional delegates did in fact acknowledge their frailties and deficiencies. And therefore, they wisely made provision for their inability to foresee all that the new country might encounter by crafting procedures 
that allowed for the Constitution to be amended. In fact, let me read you a quote here from George Washington, who actually presided over the Constitutional Convention. He said, quote, If to please the people, we offer what we ourselves disapprove, how can we afterward defend our work? Let us raise a standard to which the wise and honest can repair. The event is in the hand of God. So there are three points about this quote that I want to make. First, Washington concedes that time would expose any flaws that might exist in their work. And he trusted that those who would be appointed to improve upon it would be wise and honest. So obviously they accepted that amendments would eventually come, but amendments not abolition of the principles that were giving birth to the nation. Secondly, he recognized that the will of the people could not always be trusted completely, and so that the standard must be that wise and honest men represent the interests of the people as a whole. And then lastly, he acknowledged that, ultimately, God is the one who must lead and direct those in the future just as they believe that God had led and directed them. So, in my humble opinion, that's not bad judgment for imperfect men. So, while it is indeed true that there is none righteous, no, not one, according to Paul in Romans chapter 3, I would nevertheless make the argument that these imperfect men, though they certainly were, fashioned a form of government that was based on perfect principles. And I say that. Because our Constitution, ladies and gentlemen, is based in large part upon the very principles, laws, and statutes Moses and the nation of Israel was given at Mount Sinai. In fact, many of the writings of our past leaders attest to this. Here's a good example that I thought I would share with you. It comes to us from President Harry S. Truman. And he said, quote, The fundamental basis of this nation's laws was given to Moses on the mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings we get from Exodus and Matthew, from Isaiah and Paul. I don't think we emphasize that enough these days. If we don't have a proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government which does not believe in rights for anybody except the state. Now, oddly enough, he made that statement approximately 60 years ago. Interesting. So because our form of government was based on the Torah that God gave to Israel and a belief that his hand had guided those who birthed the nation, many other leaders have warned us what would happen if the country were to abandon those foundational principles and that fundamental belief. President John Adams wrote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Jedediah Morse, who is known as the father of American geography, wrote, Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present Republican forms of government and all the blessings which flow from them must fall with them. Another American diplomat and politician, Daniel Webster, made this declaration in 1837. The hand that destroys the Constitution renders our union asunder. And most recently, 
President Ronald Reagan said, If we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we'll, then we will be a nation gone under. Folks, there is not nearly enough time for me to quote the hundreds of different sources that essentially say the same thing that these few noteworthy statements acknowledge, and that is this. Don't tamper with the foundation. Don't undermine the principles upon which this nation was founded. And so I feel that this brief lesson has been necessary so that we may better understand what those who laid the foundation intended for the country and consequently perceive the current changes for what they truly are. And that is this, tampering with, if not negating outright, the wisdom and the validity of the Constitution and thus our liberties. Now this that I have just described to you in that sentence, that is what happens in a true democracy. The people rule and so the law can be discarded and replaced by something more suitable to the people's wishes. And so if laws written and established long ago are considered too antiquated to be able to deal with 21st century issues, then just do away with them. But remember, a democracy has the tendency to open the door to tyranny and in reality, lawlessness. So, a democracy, we've, under, we've briefly talked about what that is, and a republic. We briefly talked about what that is. So, of those two, which sounds closer to the path that man would choose for himself and which sounds closer to the path that God would choose for man? Now, I want to read another scripture here to you. And the scripture comes to us from Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. And it says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, in my humble opinion, this scripture defines our culture's core problem. Because we see ourselves one way, while God views us in a totally different light. We feel that we know what's best for us, and so we think that ancient laws, whether we're talking about the Constitution or we're talking about the Torah, that these ancient laws cannot be considered the final word for a society such as ours. Because we believe that our progressive attitudes must prevail in order to ensure continued prosperity and security, and all the while... We fail to see that we are sowing our own destruction. Because once again, a democracy where people rule is they can change the laws to suit their needs as they see them or as they define them at that particular time. And so they'll undermine the very foundation that has brought them to this, this place that they are. And so when people look at the Torah as restricting life, they want to do away with it. Because they see it that, well, you know, our, uh, what we know and understand today surpasses that, and so that was old and antiquated and done away with, et cetera, et cetera. And they think they're living, but in reality what they're doing is they're sowing the seeds of death. So again, the Torah does not impede life, it ensures life by restricting the evil inclination of men. And when we say evil, that is not just to say baby killers and devil worshippers and people like this. But anything that walks outside the parameters of God's word is wickedness. It's it's sin. It is what it is. So anyway, 
I believe that's the core problem. And so people have the mindset that we know better. In short, mankind, and especially Western society, has a distorted view of liberty. Because we define it as unfettered freedom to do whatever I want, just as long as, seemingly, no one else is hurt in the process. But the scriptures do not define liberty this way. Actually, the biblical view of liberty is, without law, liberty results in lawlessness. In other words, if you think you're free, and you're free to throw off laws that you would define as being something that would restrain you, the end result is going to be lawlessness. And so God's principle then is, in order to be free, one must be willing to give up his freedom. We do a teaching called The Laws of the Bond Servant, and it's part of our Tour in the Believer series, which, by the way, we are in the process of updating. But the, the Bond Servant teaching is to bring us to that point of realization that if we truly want to be free, for whom the sun sets free is free indeed, is saying that you must be willing to give up your freedom, that you must be willing to have a heart that wants to be a bond servant, to hear and to do the instructions of the master. And so the distinct differences between man's and God's perspective of freedom and prosperity is evident, I believe anyway, in what Yeshua had to say to the Laodicean congregation. In fact, let's read that here in Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Put simply, they saw themselves one way, and the Messiah saw them as the complete opposite. And these were believers that he was speaking to, not the world. These were believers, albeit they were from Laodicea. And so much has been written about Laodicea and all their woes and all their problems. And so I'm not going to belabor all of their errors here. I do want to, however, point out two things. Number one, their mixed and mingled mindset. And we want to look at the literal meaning of Laodicea. So those are the two things we want to talk about and emphasize here. Number one, that they are described as being lukewarm is to suggest that they are a mixture of hot and cold. Or in other words, they have mingled the holy with the profane. And of course, if you know anything about scripture, you know that God says to do not do this. He from the very beginning has said, do not mix the holy with the profane. Do not mix what is common with what is clean. And so the congregation in Laodicea are neither totally righteous nor totally wicked, but are, if you will, good and evil. And this is the deadly cocktail that, from the very beginning, has mixed God's ways, biblical principle, with human aspirations. And that has been our downfall from the very beginning, since the time when the woman, who was there accompanied by the man, determined that the forbidden tree of the good of the knowledge of good and evil was desirable to make one wise. And so their lust for this wisdom that they believe would elevate them to knowing at least as much as the Creator did 
obviously caused them to turn their back on the other tree that was in the midst of the garden, and that is the tree of life, which, of course, is synonymous with the word of God. You can find that in Proverbs chapter 3.18. So, in other words, they had to turn their back on the word of God in order to embrace the wisdom that they thought they were going to get. They they thought, well, you know, these commands that he's given us concerning this tree and this fruit aren't fear. So we know best. But to to get it, to take of this fruit, they had to turn their back on the one that would have really given them life. And so what they thought was going to be good for them actually resulted in death. So the same principle we see, ladies and gentlemen, over and over and over again starts at the very beginning. They saw a way that seemed right to them, but in the end it meant death. They saw things one way while the Creator saw them much differently. And since there is nothing new under the sun, we shouldn't be surprised to see that this mindset and this attitude was still a problem in the early churches and the early congregations of the Messiah 2,000 years ago. And if it was a problem then, and if it was a problem in the beginning, then guess what? It's still a problem to this very day. And so, understanding the spiritual disposition of Laodicea we now want to look at the second point that we refer to, and that is the very name Laodicea, because here's what's so fascinating about it. This word or this name is actually a composite of two different Greek words that together mean this, people's opinion or people decide. Now, consider that when you review what the Messiah had to say about their mixed or double-mindedness, or their their mingled mindset. But also consider this, how closely the meaning of Laodicea, the people decide, people's opinion, how closely that relates to the meaning of democracy, people rule. Very similar themes, to say the least. And so if you have similar meanings, it would seem logical to conclude that you're going to have similar results as well. In other words, if Laodicea and democracy are synonymous or similar at the very least, then we're in a democracy, the majority is going to restrict the rights of the minority, you're probably going to find the same type of thing in Laodicea. But more specifically, and perhaps more importantly, in a democracy where the people rule, that means that law is fluid, that If the people do not like the laws, then the laws are changed to accommodate what the people want. And so in Laodicea, they have this mixed mindset, and so that is to suggest that they have allowed other things that were not supposed to be part of their mindset, have allowed those to creep in, which would also suggest that things that were important that they were not supposed to let go of, they perhaps have. In other words, they have added to and they have taken away. They have this mixed mindset. And so you're going to see corruption. You're going to see the kind of things that you would find, if you will, in a pure democracy. In other words, they're picking and choosing which laws apply to them. If they don't like a law that says that you work six days and on the seventh day you rest. Well, if they don't like that, if that doesn't conform to their wishes or to their lifestyle, 
Well, you just ignore that one. You get rid of that one. You say that one really doesn't apply to us anymore. That's antiquated. That's outdated. And on and on and on. And so you get the idea. That's the mindset of Laodicea. The people decree. The people's opinions is what prevails. Law becomes secondary to the people's opinions. And again, we see this going on in our country where constitutional law, people find loopholes, they find ways to get around it if those restrictions that are in the Constitution do not conform to the people's wishes or to the majority's wishes. And so this is what we see going on in Laodicea, and that is why the Messiah told Laodicea that you need to be zealous and to repent. And when we repent, the word shuv in Hebrew literally means to turn, or even better, to return. And so if you look in Revelation chapter 3, you are in the seventh of these seven congregations that is Laodicea, and if you were to turn, or better, to return, that is to go back into the direction from which you have been coming, the the direction from which you have strayed, go back, return, and of course the implication is to return to God. You're going to notice that in Revelation 3, that if as you start turning and you start heading back in the other direction, away from Laodicea, interestingly, the first congregation that you're going to come to is the one in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia, of course, is the congregation of brotherly love. And I want to read to you from Revelation 3, verses 8 and verses 10, what the Messiah has to say about the congregation in Philadelphia. He says, See, I have set before you an open door. If you recall, in Laodicea there was a closed door, but in Philadelphia there is an open door. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, let me, let me pause there very quickly. If Laodicea is a congregation that sees themselves one way and the Messiah sees them another way, if they're a congregation that has a mingled, mixed mindset and that is what has deluded them into thinking that everything's okay, God's still good with us, we're, you know, we're still being blessed, etc., etc., it would also imply that they have not been faithful to keep his word. They have allowed things of his word to be taken away, and then they've added other things to his word. And in effect, that is going to lead to them denying his name, because Messiah said, if you love me, keep my commandments. All right, so we're just trying to compare these two congregations, one to the other. He goes on in verse 10 and he says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And he goes on and talks about how that he would make them pillars in the house of, of God. And of course, pillars denote something that is holding up in an act of support. It is, it's something that is illustrating or demonstrating being in a position of influence and being in an influential and powerful position. Nonetheless, these two are at the opposite extremes. One is mixed, one is mingled, one doesn't see themselves in the same way that Messiah sees them. And it's because, in the name Laodicea, the people's decrees take precedent over what his word says, over what his law says. The people's opinions are 
superior in their mind to what God has said. And so God's law becomes fluid. It becomes something that they can take away from and add to. Again, a democracy in the purest sense of the word, that's what happens. When the will of the people is coming in conflict with what the law of the land says, then the people simply rise up and they elect officials that will change the laws to come into accordance with the people's wishes. In Philadelphia, we see that this is a congregation of believers who were faithful to his word, who subjected themselves to his word, and who did not deny his name. And because they were faithful to his word, because they didn't deny his name, because they persevered in this, he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world. Now, what's really interesting about this is not only does that name, Philadelphia, mean brotherly love, which reminds me, when the Messiah is approached and it was asked, what is the greatest command? The answer is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, number one. And then he says, and another is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two points hang all of the law and the prophets. And so the concept of brotherly love, as it is defined by Philadelphia, is reminiscent of that. Actually, let's read just very quickly from Hebrews chapter 12, something that kind of ties into what we're talking about here. Beginning in verse 25, the writer says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Remember, he told Philadelphia in Revelation 3, because you've kept my word and have not denied my name, because you've, because you've persevered, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. And so keep that in mind as we're reading this. And so he's talking about those who were not able to escape and, and those who heard him speak from earth. He says, more so shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And so what he's talking about is things being shaken in heaven and earth, and those things that cannot stand will fall, and those things that are worthy to stand will continue. And so in the first verse of chapter 13, and here's why this is so interesting to us. He says, let brotherly love continue. And so, in other words, right on the heels of saying that God is going to shake heaven and earth, and there are things that are not going to be able to stand this shaking, and then there are things that will be able to stand, the very next thing he says is let brotherly love continue, if you will. It says, let Philadelphia continue. That is to say that, in this, all this shaking and all these things that are going to happen when his voice speaks from heaven, brotherly love, Philadelphia will continue. And so going back to Revelation chapter 3, 
the Messiah says, because you've kept my word, because you've been true to it, if you will, because you have not added to, because you have not taken away, because you've not sought to overturn my law, because you've not sought to undermine it or to find loopholes, etc., etc., I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing that's coming upon the whole earth, inferring that Philadelphia brotherly love will continue. Now, I said all of that to make this observation. Isn't it interesting that Philadelphia is where our Constitution was drafted and then adopted? Now, this is either a really big coincidence or we see something in American history that relates to these biblical concepts and written in these biblical principles and even, if I may say, has some kind of prophetic connotation to it. So just to kind of summarize what we've been talking about the last few minutes here, what we want you to see, what we want you to understand, it's at least my firm belief that the two congregations, Laodicea and Philadelphia, is similar to the comparison that we were making between a purely democratic form of government and a purely Republican form of government. Laodicea would be similar to democracy and what, what it all entails and things that we've, we've already discussed. And Philadelphia would be very similar to a Republican form of government. And again, a democracy, laws are fluid or they can be fluid. It just depends on the will of the people. And so in Laodicea, what do we see? It's the we, the people's opinions. It's their decisions, their decrees that become most important, which means that law can be subjected to those opinions and to those decrees. And we see this throughout mainstream Christianity. We have for some time now. And then compare that to what we see in a Republican form of government where law is entered in, or excuse me, a covenant is entered into in the United States history. It was these 13 colonies who entered into this covenantal relationship and agreed to all abide by this constitution, which would represent the law, and that they were all subject to that law. And that law guaranteed freedoms, it guaranteed liberties by the individual being willing to come into this covenantal agreement. Philadelphia, we have this brotherly love aspect of things where they respect one another. They are not surrendering their individual rights per se, but are coming together in some cohesive unity whereby the law that God has set down, this is the final word, and we have to subject ourselves to what God says. And that is indicative of Philadelphia, and it just so happens that Philadelphia is the place where our Constitution was drafted and later adopted. So those kinds of things there are what we're trying to point out to you, because now what we want to do is begin to turn our attention to this question, I guess is the way to put it, having understood what was intended to be and having understood the distinctions between a democracy and between a republic and, if you will, between Laodicea and between Philadelphia. Now we, hopefully anyway, can see why change is not such a good thing that it is in line with a democracy, it is in line with Laodicea. And we understand what the Messiah had to say to Laodicea. And so 
That was why we went through all of this. We wanted to see what was intended, what the principles of uh, the founders were, what the, the principles of a republic are, what the principles of a democracy are, and then see why change, and in particular the change that we're undergoing right now, is not a good thing. In fact, it is subversive to the intent of the framers. It is subversive to the intent of the founders. And in a biblical model, it is subversive to God's ways, to God's principles, to God's standards, to God's Torah. And so then, the question is this. Why is this change happening? Well, number one, I believe that all the things that are going on in our country, frankly, ladies and gentlemen, are a reflection of what has been going on in the body of Messiah for some time. So first and foremost, I believe that's why we're seeing these changes occur. But secondly, I want to suggest to you that in the end, these changes are going to serve God's purposes. Now, these changes, as I just said, are indications that the mindset of the people is to undermine or to ignore God's laws and God's principles and God's standards. And because the body at large has been complicit in this and in some ways instigated it, that as a result of the body's condition, this double-mindedness, this mingled mindset, this Laodicean attitude, that's why these things are happening. And yet, in the end, we may find that these changes that we're undergoing are going to ultimately serve God's purposes. And what I mean by that is, many times what we find is that the adversary who has his own agenda and who has his own intent is going to exploit the weakness of God's people. He's going to exploit their their mingled state, their double-mindedness, their refusal to turn themselves wholeheartedly over to God's ways, the adversary will exploit that, and then he will try to, if he can, he'll try to destroy them or to at least undermine them. Not ignoring that that's what his intent is, but many times what we find is that his agenda ends up unwittingly serving God's agenda. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar is the guy, the Babylonian king, who comes into Jerusalem, and he raises the city, he destroys it, he burns it, he... He pilfers the temple. He carries off the temple treasures. He carries off the princes of Judah into captivity. He is the one who desecrates, if you will, the house of God and burns it to the ground. And yet, God refers to him as my servant. So how is it that God refers to someone who does these kinds of things as his servant? Because ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar was acting as a correction rod. And that correction rod was intended to shake God's people from their double-mindedness, from their attitude of being mixed and mingled in their approach to God, to, if you will, to provoke them to be holy, to pursue righteousness, and to recognize that these things have happened as a result of your being willing to add to and to take away. And so in that sense, Nebuchadnezzar becomes God's servant, even though Nebuchadnezzar has his agenda and has his objective, it unwittingly ends up serving God's objective. And God's objective ultimately was to bring his people to repentance and to bring his people into a time of restoration. 
So the point was and is that ultimately everything and everybody ultimately is going to play some role in serving the purposes of the Creator, even when the agenda of the adversary is to destroy God's people. I'm not saying that God will allow him or permit him to destroy God's people. That's not what my point is. That's his objective. But God uses the adversary's intent and some of the things that happen because of the adversary's intent to ultimately serve God's purposes. Another example of this is the story of Moses. When Moses was born, of course, the Pharaoh was trying to destroy God's people. He was wanting the Hebrew males to be tossed into the river. And so while all this was happening, Yochaved takes the baby, puts him in a basket, floats him off down the river. And Miriam, the sister, is somewhere nearby watching all of this. And it just so happened on this certain day that Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river to bathe. And she takes the baby from the water and she names him Moshe or, or Moses and is going to take her as her own child. Well, Miriam sees this, and she comes, and she asks Pharaoh's daughter, do you want me to fetch a nurse? And Pharaoh's daughter says yes, and so in the end, Miriam goes and gets Yochaved, the the mother of the baby, who then takes her own baby and nurses him and raises him in the house of the very man who was trying to kill the baby, and not only that, but gets paid by the man who was trying to kill the baby. And so my point is this. The adversary, through Pharaoh, if you will, has his agenda, but in the end, the adversary's agenda ends up unwittingly serving God's agenda. And so I said all of that to say this. We've tried to trace in a very limited way, in a very small way, the history of behind our Constitution, why it come into being, why the framers wanted to establish a republic over a democracy, and to distinguish those big differences between those two philosophies of government, and then show how that these things are similar to the differences between Laodicea and Philadelphia. And in doing that, hopefully, to show you why these changes that the country is undergoing are so dangerous and are so subversive to the intent of the founders. Nevertheless, what we also want to now see is that these things, perhaps, these changes that are going on, perhaps, are, even though those who are trying to bring about these changes have their own agenda, but in the end we may find that they are unwittingly serving God's agenda, that they are, without knowing it, serving God's purposes. Pursuing their objective, yes, which flies in the face of everything that God stands for, and yet in the end is going to serve his purpose. And if that is so, then the Father's purpose is this. He will many times use the adversary to bring correction to his people, to provoke his people to return to him with their whole heart to remove this mixed and mingled element from within them and to repent from this double-mindedness and to be restored to him and according to his purposes. And so in part two of this teaching, that's what we're going to begin to focus upon. That is, what was God's purpose for America? We know what the purpose was as far as some of the founders were concerned. We know what their intent was. 
But what was God's purpose? And if we can understand what God's purpose for America was and maybe is, then maybe we can also understand why some of these things are happening. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now, back to our program.